Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The first reading can be found on page 1052 and is taken from Luke chapter 8, verses 9 to 14. That's page 1052. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The second reading can be found on page 1130. It's taken from Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. And that's page 1130. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, Through the law, we become conscious of sin. This is the word of the Lord. As we stand, let me pray for us. Father, we've been singing of your great faithfulness. We pray that we would grasp more of what an amazing, uh, gracious and faithful God you are as we see more of who we are this evening. Uh, May you grab our hearts, perhaps as never before, and um, thrill us with the gospel uh, as we see the darkness of our own lives, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do sit down. Well, let me encourage you to do two things. Uh, one, uh, if you like that, this sort of thing, would be to grab hold of uh, this uh, handout so you can see where we're going for the next uh, 25 minutes. The other thing to do would be to grab hold of a Bible and to turn with me to page 1129 and uh, Romans chapter 2 as we look through this series. Now I realise as I say grab hold of a Bible, some of you will be uh, turning to your 
mobile phones and, and tablets, mobile devices. Uh, when that first started to happen a few years ago, I wondered if people at this point were playing Angry Birds. I'll take it that you are um, getting your Bible uh, up on your mobile device. Incidentally, um, for those of you who are interested in these things, I've heard uh, that just today YouTube, Twitter and Facebook are, are merging. Have you heard that news? They're going to merge, making a giant social media communications company. It's remarkable. They will be uh, dominant in the world in, the, in this area of technology. YouTube, Twitter and Facebook together. Just uh, thought you'd like to know. Oh, the new company is going to be called U-Twitface, incidentally. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, uh, you can, um, uh, you, you've got your Bibles open and your mobile devices. Romans chapter 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Romans chapter 3 verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Are any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge. Jew and Gentile alike are under sin. There's no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Uh, someone asked a friend of mine recently, do you really believe, do you really believe that everyone deserves to go to hell? It's a very good question, and I reckon it will be asked by anyone who's been following our last couple of weeks in the book of Romans. Having been asked this question, my friend said to me, of course, sir, everyone I've ever met believes that it is right for some people uh, to face the full force of God's wrath. Everyone believes that God should judge the wicked, he said. So really the question is, about whether we personally really deserve God's judgment upon us. Now, I thought that was a very helpful observation. Most of us can see that it is right for God to judge the wicked, that it would be wrong for him not to. But we don't see ourselves as wicked. And so this teaching at the beginning of the book of Romans, that everyone is facing God's wrath, leaves us questioning whether that can be true. And certainly can it be true for us personally, because we're not that bad really, are we? Now, it's exactly that kind of reaction that this next section of the book of Romans is engaging with. From chapter 2, verse 1, right through to chapter 3, verse 8, Paul anticipates the objections from all those who stick their hand up and say, yes, that's all very well. Yes, God should judge the wicked, but he won't judge me. I can't believe that I'm going to face God's wrath. I'm not that bad. Now, first in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, Paul confronts those who think they're okay because they have high morals. We might call them, and indeed, if you've got the handout, you'll see I have called this group of people the self-righteous moralist. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse in view of everything I've just been writing, says Paul. He says, everybody's going to face the wrath of God. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else... For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Uh, twice there in verse 1, and you'll see it again in verse 3, this section confronts those who pass judgment on others. Now, it's what we were thinking about last week at our, our guest service. We love to compare ourselves to others to make ourselves look better because we can always find others who aren't as good as us. I think of someone I know well. She's always had very high standards. Uh, she was part of a generation that was taught to do things well, to be polite, to work hard, to be a good citizen. And she always tried to live that way. And there are many good things about that, and I'm not knocking it. 
But whenever Caroline and I visited her, she would wax lyrical about the state of the nation. Newspaper in hand, she would speak of all the disgusting and degrading actions of others, and she'd say, what is the world coming to? Now, I'm not even saying that she didn't have a point. Britain isn't the place it used to be, but here's the problem. While she was a churchgoer and believed in God, we were never convinced that she got the gospel. She would certainly not call herself a sinner, And we never heard her speak of her thankfulness that Jesus had died for her to deal with her sin and save her from the wrath of God and for heaven. Of course, she never said that because she didn't think she was that bad. Because compared to others, she wasn't that bad. She was a good person. So she never dreamed that she would face the wrath of God when she died. She knew she wasn't perfect, but there were many more worse than her, do you see? That's the special pleading of the self-righteous moralist. That's what's going on in this first section, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So again, chapter 1, 18 to 31, everyone is guilty and faces the wrath of God, but not me. Compared to others, I'm a good person. And everyone does it. We can all find someone worse than us. So I think of a guy in his 40s who was caught by the police downloading child pornography And the first thing he said to me when I went to see him was, I'm not a paedophile. I like children, I would never harm a child. I'm not as bad as people who do that. Speaking to someone who'd been serially adulterous, he said to me, but I haven't broken the law. And I never abused my position of authority. And he listed a number of other things he didn't do, saying, I'm not a bad person, Paul. See, whoever we are, we can always find someone who we think is worse than us. And even as I'm giving those examples of someone who downloaded child pornography and another who was serially adulterous, we're sitting here feeling smug because we're not that bad. Isn't that the case? We all do it. And so Paul, pointing to those who read this letter, to you and to me, he says, verse 1, you, yes, you, there's no excuse for you either. You who, verse 1, pass judgment on others, you who think you're a cut above. And it is a problem for us. I was thinking about who I was going to be speaking to tonight. Of course I was. Most of us have been brought up to do the right thing. We've been raised in nice families, educated in decent schools, being given a good moral framework. Most of us wouldn't dream of stealing anything or of defrauding others. We want to be good citizens. We are good neighbours and generally considerate. I reckon that's how we think of ourselves. And again, I'm not knocking that. But can you see how a wholesome life so easily makes us judgmental, looking down our noses at others? And as a result, finding it impossible to believe that we're going to come under the wrath of God because... We're not that bad. And because that's how we think, and because we are always looking to excuse ourselves, Paul writes here, verse 1, there is no excuse. Because, verse 1, the very point at which you judge others, you will be judged because you do the same things. And he says the same in verse 3. So you, when a a mere man pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, Do you think you'll escape God's judgment? That has certainly happened to me. I pride myself on being punctual. I tell others not to be late. I tell others it's rude to be late. I tell others that, uh, oh, I can make a good theological argument for being late. Oh, we've got to love one another. 
And if you walk in late into a meeting and it's already started, you disrupt everybody. That's love, isn't it? Oh, yes, I can really wax lyrical on that one. I think it's very important not to be late. And I'm studying this, and this week, I was late for something. Having said that, I think verse 3 is actually doing something much bigger. It's not just saying that if you have high values on timekeeping, then you'll be judged by that. It's more general. It's, it's all embracing. It's saying if you have high morals at all, then you'll be judged by a high standard. And here's the real thing. None of us lives up to our own standards, let alone God's. And that's the real point. David Cook puts it like this. It's as though some of us are, are down the deepest mine shaft on the planet and morally some of us on the top of Mount Everest, but neither if you are down the mine shaft or at the top of Everest, neither of you are able to reach the stars. So have high morals. It is good to aim high. But when we do, don't think that we're better than others. And don't think that because we're better than others, we'll not face God's judgment. That's the real point. Because compared to God, we fail miserably. And remarkably, the self-righteous moralist especially fails in the way they treat God. (laughs) Look at verse four. This was new to me that I've kind of read this verse before, never really understood it before. Verse four. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realising that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? What's going on there? Verse four is this scenario. It's when something goes wrong for someone else and you look down your nose and you say to yourself, well, they had it coming. It's only what they deserved. And as you say that, you're feeling smug in the belief that the same thing hasn't happened to you because you deserve God's blessing. Well, they had it coming. I didn't because God's shining his face upon me. But end of verse four, God is being kind and tolerant and patient with you. And verse four, you're showing contempt for the riches of God's kindness because end of verse four, God's kindness is designed to lead us towards repentance. The only reason it hasn't happened to us is not because we're good, but because he's being kind. He's patient with us. That's the only reason God's judgment hasn't fallen upon us yet. He's patient with us, wanting us to repent of our sin. But when bad things happen to other people, uh, we, we think, oh, God's judgment's on them, it's not on me. No, the only reason God's judgment hasn't come upon us is because he's patient with us, wanting us to repent. But of course, the last thing the self-righteous moralist thinks he has to do is repent. Why should I repent? What I going to repent of? I'm a good person as bad as them do you see all the way through this section Paul says Paul says the self-righteous moralist has a serious problem and all of these comments that come flowing out of our mouths are symptoms of a serious spiritual condition sclerosis hardening of the arteries verse 5 it's there stubbornness it is hardness of heart see the self-righteous moralist has a very serious heart problem Being hard-hearted, we refuse to repent, verse 5, and you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's wrath. You see, the way the rest of this uh, little section goes is this. Verse 6, God says uh, that he will judge you by what you have done. And while verse 7, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. While that is a fact, that if you really do live this perfect life of always seeking God, that you would have eternal life. 
Of course, the truth is that none of us actually live verse 7. So verse 7 is true, but none of us live it. We're all in the category of verse 8. Those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil. And you can see that for them, there will be wrath and anger. And so, verse 9, everyone is in trouble. And notice that in verse 9, everyone who does evil, we all do evil. That's what chapter 1 was about. So everyone faces trouble and distress. That's Paul's point. You see, there are no loopholes. Verse 11, God doesn't show favoritism. Now, let, let me stop here for a moment and ask you if you've ever really made a true assessment of yourself. If you looked in the mirror and, and stopped that thing of comparing yourself to others and just said, yeah, look, this is what you're really like, Paul. Be honest for once. No buts. No special pleading. No loopholes. This is what you're like. And can I ask you if you've ever done that, especially if you have high morals? And let me say again, this is not knocking high morals. It's good to have people with high morals in society. It makes life a lot more pleasant. But the problem is, if we have these high standards, we play the game of comparison, but we're making the wrong comparison. Yes, you're better than other people. I'm sure you are. But what about with God? And if you play that game, you never turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. You never repent. Because what do you need to repent of? Because God won't judge you, will he? So from the self-righteous moralist, secondly, to the uninformed lawbreaker, verses 12 to 16. Let me read verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. What's going on here? Paul is now turning to people who say, but I never knew, I never had a chance to believe. No one ever told me. I was away the day when the Gideons came into school and gave everyone a Bible, so I never had access to God's law. I never wasn't there that day. How could I possibly know how to live? I don't have God's law. I won't face God's judgment. Do you see this kind of special pleading now? Now look, of course, most of us here can't say that. Yes, there will be some here, some here this evening, who've genuinely never heard God's law. Think of the international students who've just arrived in Sheffield. We, we, we had some here last week and the week before. I wouldn't be at all surprised if there aren't here some here today. You're very welcome. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for coming. Oh, we've been very excited over the years to meet students who've never heard about Jesus Christ. This is exactly your situation. But let me say, before the rest of you switch off, this is just for us as well. For isn't this a question that people ask in evangelism? What about those who've never heard? Now, maybe you're here this evening, and although you have heard, you're asking that question yourself. What about those who've never heard? It's one of the questions we often get on the reason for God. Great question. Fantastic question. Bring it along. And when it's asked by those who actually have heard, they've been on the reason for God course, they've heard, they've heard the, the gospel by now, and then they say, but what about those who've never heard? When it's asked that way, it's usually a question about the character of God. Can I really trust God? Or it's a question designed to undermine the gospel. If that's your gospel, it doesn't work, does it? Because what about those who've never heard? So it's a really important question. 
whether we are those who've never heard or not. Now, two weeks ago in chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, we saw that everyone has heard through creation. And everyone has chosen to ignore the revelation of God that comes through creation. But rather than just reiterate that argument, Paul appeals now to the conscience. Look what he says, verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles, that would be those who don't have God's law, in one sense, those who've never heard. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. Since they show the requirements of the law written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Paul is saying people do know what is right and wrong in their conscience, even if they never had the Gideon Bible that day. We don't need to know all the details of God's law to know what is right and wrong. It's imprinted on our conscience. And here's an encouragement then for those who ask, what about those who've never heard? If we've never been exposed to God's law, we won't be judged on what we don't know. People sometimes do by nature things required by God's law. They just do. And so, verse 16, on Judgment Day, their consciences will excuse them because some of their actions were consistent with God's law. But, (laughs) here's the problem, at the same time, their consciences will, will accuse them because many of the things they did through their lives were wrong and against the law, and they knew it. Even without having God's law written, they just knew they were doing wrong. Now, hey, you only have to have children to know this is true. They know when they're doing wrong. They look at you, they look guilty as anything, written all over their faces. They know they're wrong. Even if you haven't told them it's wrong, they know it's wrong. And so here we see God is not unjust and no one will accuse him of being unjust on judgment day. The person who's never heard of God's law won't shout on judgment day, that's not fair. No, their own conscience will accuse them because while they did many things that were right, They also did many things on many occasions that were wrong. So you see, whether you fall into this category of never having heard God's law, or whether you raise this question as a question about the gospel or about God's character, this section says, don't think that anyone in this category will escape God's judgment. Again, a loophole is closed. Again, we see everyone is guilty. Everyone will face God's wrath. And that is true even of the people in the third category, what I've called the unrepentant religious person. Uh, And we're over the page on the handout if you're still following along. Chapter 2, 17 to 3, 8. Now this is a long section. And don't worry, we're way on to finishing. I'm not going to possibly go through it all now. But you'll see from verse 17 that at this point, Paul turns to address Jewish people, but listen, Paul is not attacking them for being Jewish. There's been plenty of that in the newspaper this week. He's not anti-Semitic, he is a Jew himself. No, he's saying to them, don't hide behind your Jewishness. Or if I may put it this way, don't hide behind religion, even if your religion is true. Because religion, just like the self-righteous moralist, religion makes people complacent. I'm religious, I'm better than them. So I hear people say, I'm a Catholic, I'm Church of England, I've been baptised. Hear what they're saying? I'm all right because I'm religious. 
And beware, in case you think I'm pointing the finger, beware, because we might find ourselves saying, I go to a Bible-believing church. But here's the issue. If we are unrepentant, if we haven't faced up to our sinfulness and the dire straits that we are in in facing the wrath of God, and if we've never turned to Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can deal with our sin, then it doesn't matter what church we go to or what religion we're affiliated to, even if our religion is right. Now, I've never seen this before so clearly either in this passage. Just look as I read verses 17 to 20 and see what Paul anticipates the Jewish persons to say. And as I read verses 17 to 20, see that evangelicals say exactly the same thing today. Verse 17, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have the law, in the law, the embodiment and knowledge of truth, if that is true of all you, now look, isn't that exactly what you and I say? as evangelical Christians. Verse 17, brag about your relationship to God. That's what we do. We brag about our relationship. We're not religious. We have a relationship with God. Verse 18, we say that we know God's will. We find it in his word. Verse 19 is exactly what we're convinced of, that we have the truth that can lead others out of darkness into light. Verse 20 is exactly our position. Here in the Bible, it points to Jesus, who is the embodiment of the knowledge and of truth. Isn't that remarkable? Aren't these exactly the things we say? We make all these claims for ourselves, and let me say, they are true. So Paul isn't saying they're not true, and he isn't even saying it's wrong to say these things. He's simply saying we can't hide behind these things and appeal to them as a reason why we won't face God's wrath. Because the reality is that while we make big claims for ourselves and for our religion, we're still sinful. That's very important. Now, if, you're, if I've lost you a bit, let me, let me make it as plain as I can. Simply being able to say and affirm verses 17 to 20 will not save us. Now, all those things in verses 17 to 20 are, are crucial for us to get right, get right with God. But simply to be able to say verses 17 to 20 gives us no place for special pleading. So on judgment day, when God says you are guilty, why should I let you into heaven? If I reply, because the church I belong to talked about having a relationship with you, God... And the church I belong to talk about knowing your will through your word. And the church I went to had the truth and could lead other people out of darkness into light and pointed people to Jesus. If that's how I reply on judgment day, the Lord will say, but I never knew you, Paul. Because I cannot be saved by my appealing to a religious body of truth to save me. Or an affiliation with a church that believed the right things. Do you see the subtle difference? 
I must realize that I am a sinner who deserves God's wrath and that I can do nothing to change that and that Jesus Christ alone and his death on the cross is the only way out of that predicament. And I personally must turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith to be safe from God's wrath. Well, that my time really has almost gone. And so in two sentences, let me explain chapter two, verse 25 to 38. And then I'll go on to Paul's conclusion. In verses 25 to 29, Paul then imagines the Jew or the religious person saying, but we're the covenant people of God. We've the mark of circumcision. And he replies, circumcision is nothing if it's only outward. In the same way that he could say, baptism is nothing if it's only outward. Yeah, we can come and baptise you, but if it's only outward, it means nothing. You need to be cut to the heart, verse 29. And in chapter three, he says, oh, it's a great privilege to be part of the covenant community. You have the word of God. Yes, it's brilliant to be in the covenant community. It's brilliant to be here on a Sunday because you hear the word of God, but it's not enough just to hear it. Three groups of people then, all arguing that surely they won't face God's wrath. And there's something of them all, of them in all of us. When we say, I'm not that bad, we're like the self-righteous moralist hiding behind our good lives. When we plead, I never knew, we're like the uninformed lawbreaker hiding behind ignorance. And when we say, I'll be okay, I've been baptised and I go to a really good church, then we're like the unrepentant religious person hiding behind an affiliation with the right religion. But none of it washes. And so Paul concludes in chapter 3, verses 9 to 18. Verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, all together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. As we close, note three things very quickly. First, the word no one is the dominant word. It's very clear what the conclusion is. No one is right with God. In case you've been thinking, is he really handling this Bible passage correctly? There's the conclusion. No one is right with God. So everyone, in and of themselves, left to themselves, faces God's wrath. Second, Paul's conclusion here is constructed by stringing together a list of Old Testament quotes. You can see that as you look down at the footnotes in the NIV. The point is this this is not a new conclusion, this is not Paul's conclusion. This is the conclusion of God's word. And third, as you look down to verses 13 and 14, please see that Paul focuses on what comes out of our mouths. Verse 13, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Tongues, throats, lips, mouths. You see, the Lord Jesus said, out of the mouth comes the overflow of the heart. We know what we're like, what our hearts are like, by listening to what we say. What comes out of your mouth and mine is actually what we are. So listen to yourself, not when you're on your best behaviour and being thoroughly polite around people you don't know very well. No, listen to yourself when your guard is down. Listen to yourself at home and the things you say about other people. Listen to the way you boast about yourself and you will hear your heart. You will hear yourself. 
your real self. And as I've been studying this this week, I'm ashamed to say, but I have to say that when I listen to what comes out of my mouth, I know that I do deserve God's wrath. The real me is not pleasant. And I know I desperately need the rescue that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do I do with all this? If you're not yet a Christian, and by that I don't mean, you know, if you call yourself Christian, if you haven't yet thrown yourself entirely upon the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, looking to the cross of the Lord Jesus as the only way you can be forgiven and be right with God, so that when you stand before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? You say, not I've done this, but Jesus died for me. If you've never done that, Will you see there are no loopholes? No special pleading will save you. So let me ask you, please turn to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is, as we've heard in chapter 1, verse 17, it is in the gospel that we know the power of God for salvation to save us from God's wrath. Please turn to Jesus tonight. Don't leave it any longer. You say, I don't know how to turn to Jesus. I've got a booklet. I had some last week. I'd love to give you one. Just take one from me. I won't ask you any questions. There's a prayer in the back. Take this and pray it. And cast yourself on the mercy of God this evening. If you are a Christian, and by that I mean that you have cast yourself upon the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation and him alone, remember why Paul is writing all this. He is actually writing to Christians in the first instance. Now, if you weren't here the last few weeks, um, let me say there's a short video on our website so you can see why he wrote this book. Uh, But I'm now going to tell you in one sentence why he did it, but so you can look it up later. You can go on the website to see why I come to this conclusion. He's writing to convince Christians in Rome to support his missionary journey to Spain... And he's asking them to give money or to go to Spain with him and certainly to pray. And so as we've studied now the first three chapters of Romans, we've seen there is no other way for people to be saved apart from the gospel. No other way. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to give money to support gospel ministry. We'll be saying more about that next week. We're supposed to give ourselves in the work of the gospel, like Ed and Louise, going to another church that isn't going to be easy for them because they know that there they can be well used. Here, I don't want everybody to leave. I'll be very lonely next week if you all leave. Don't all leave. But if you stay, get involved in the Passion for Life initiative. Uh, Get involved so that this year we'll be trained and prepared for evangelism. Frankly, just get out there and tell people because it is urgent. And will we pray, all of us, pray for the gospel to have an impact in forward and to be proclaimed all over this city and to be make inroads into the whole of Yorkshire and the north of England and to be taken all over the world. Give, go, pray, because it's urgent. Let's pray together. Well, I'll leave a moment of silence for us to make our own response to God and then Peter's going to lead us in a time of confession.